Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to Building Health Equity, the Institute for Public Health Practices series highlighting health equity practice throughout Iowa. Over the course of the series, we will be inviting speakers to dive deeper into their experiences and health equity practice to serve as a learning enrichment opportunity for health department staff and anyone interested in building health equity. As a heads up, these podcasts have been reformatted from the original Building Health Equity webinar series recordings. Welcome to the sixth installment of the Building Health Equity webinar series, Improving Health Equity in the LGBTQIA community. I'm Trisha Kitzman. I am a program coordinator with the Institute for Public Health Practice at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Now I'll have our guest speakers introduce themselves, and then after that, we will move into some discussion questions. Maxwell, I'll kick it off with you. Y'all, my name is Max Mowitz. My pronouns are they and he, and I am the program director at One Iowa. In addition to that work, I'm a community health worker and a full spectrum abortion and transition doula. Welcome, thank you. AM. Hi, um, I'm AM Rasila. I'm a uh, postdoctoral research fellow in internal medicine at the University of Iowa, uh, and I'm a trained uh, medical anthropologist. And my pronouns are they and he. Wonderful. Thank you. I guess I did forget to add my pronouns. Um, They're also on my screen, but I am a she, her. All right. So we'll go ahead and get started. Give us a little bit of your background. How did you start working with this community? And what do you do? What specifically do you do working with this community? And we'll start with you. We'll kick it off there. Sure. Um, I have been working in, I guess, gender affirming healthcare for um, since at least like 2014, I guess, in a like graduate setting, in graduate school. Um, my dissertation research uh, investigated how um, gender expansive um, patients and clients and gender affirming providers navigated gender normative healthcare bureaucracy. And all of this is through, you know, quality, it's qualitative research. So what I did is I observed practices in clinics and I interviewed um, patients um, and um, that work's continuing now. So part of my work, I'm still uh, working in gender affirming health. Uh, We recently completed a project in the um, Department of Urology, a qualitative project um, interviewing um, uh, participants about experiences they, they've had on gender-affirming hormone therapy and expectations they've had about it. Um, so that was my research project. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Maxwell. Uh, I just want to say, I mean, uh, every time I hear you share about your experience and uh, your work, I get really, really excited. So I'm just so excited to be here with you um, and and share space and knowledge. So um, I started um, LGBTQ advocacy work back in 2010 when I came out. Um, and really focused on community education and engagement. Since then, uh, my 
activism and my advocacy work has changed a lot, but uh, I would say that I started to really focus in on working with trans and non-binary individuals and doing the work that I do at Work Iowa um, in the 2018-2019 range. Um, so I came out as a trans person in 2018, and that's when I really um, decided that that was advocacy work that I wanted to commit my life to. I had done a lot of different work in different areas before then, um, but really wanted to zero in at that point. Um, then I was hired on as program uh, coordinator at One Iowa in 2019. And that is a dream job, uh, I have to say. I, I love being in this role. Um, and so with that, I've been able to reach my um, community health worker certification, which has been amazing. So I actually provide wraparound services to LGBTQ individuals. Uh, I have uh, been a uh, community health worker at the LGBTQ Unity Point Clinic here in downtown Des Moines, which has been a really, really cool experience. Um, in that time, separate from my work at One Iowa, I have uh, received certification to be a full spectrum birth doula and abortion doula and then uh, work on my own as a transition doula helping to provide trans and non-binary people with support um, as they transition. So a lot of my work has to do with um, understanding um, how folks transition and the ways that they might need support and advocacy in that process, um, but also recognizing the ways that LGBTQ people are disproportionately impacted by healthcare barriers in the state of Iowa. Um, one of my favorite parts of my job at One Iowa is that I get to provide training and support to doctors and physicians and mental health providers that want to be more LGBTQ inclusive. So there's a lot of sharing of best practices support and counsel that comes with that as well. Uh, and we really try to also pay attention to and target rural healthcare providers as well, um, in addition to creating a resource guide so that LGBTQ people can actually access those inclusive providers once they've been appropriately trained and vetted. So that's a little bit about uh, what I do in, in the different roles that I hold. Maxwell, I'm going to have you just briefly, since we do have quite a few folks that are outside the state of Iowa, could you just describe what One Iowa is? Yes. <laughs> I see I get ahead of myself. No, no, you're totally um, yeah. fine. Yeah, absolutely. So One Iowa is the statewide LGBTQ advocacy organization working primarily with adults. Um, there's another amazing LGBTQ organization that works with youth called Iowa Safe Schools and the Queer Center in Des Moines. Um, but we work primarily with adults in the area of healthcare access, workplace culture, and leadership development. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay, so just to make sure everyone is on the same page as we kick off today, and I want to make sure folks in our community or that are watching today also be able to understand who in the population we are we're talking about. So to start off, can you define what LGBTQIA stands for um, and the groups that align with this community? And I don't know which pref who has the preference to kick that one off to define for me, but that would be great. I find that everyone has like slightly different answers to this. So uh, AM, feel free to, you know, pop in <laughs> and uh, correct me, um, you know, if there's a variance here, but I'm happy to take this one. So um, we can start at the very beginning. L stands for lesbian. A lesbian is typically a woman that is sexually and or romantically attracted to other women. G stands for gay. A gay person is typically a man who is sexually and or romantically attracted to other men, although gay is often used as an umbrella term. So you might be familiar with Ellen DeGeneres. She identifies both as a gay woman and as a lesbian. So that's 
cool when that happens. Um, a bisexual person is what the B stands for, and uh, a bisexual person is a person that is sexually and or romantically attracted to people of two or more genders. That's where we get the bi and bisexual. And uh, T stands for trans or transgender, which describes a person that does not identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. Q can stand for both queer and questioning. A questioning person is a person that's figuring out their sexual orientation, their gender identity, or both at the same time. And a queer person is a person that's part of the broader LGBTQ uh, community. And there are as many ways to be queer as there are queer people. Um, a couple of other terms that sometimes come up um, a can often come up and that stands for asexual. As a asexual person is a person that does not have uh, persistent sexual attraction to other folks and that exists on a spectrum in and of itself. Um, the I that you might interact with stands for intersex. An intersex person is a person whose biological anatomy and or genes vary from the expected male or female hormones, chromosomes, internal and external reproductive anatomy. Um, and you might also see 2S, which stands for two-spirit, which is specifically a native or indigenous individual um, that might identify depending on their tribe. So I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here. There's so many different ways to be two spirit um, uh, might um, identify as a third gender or multiple genders in their tribe or even as a fourth or a fifth gender and often have an honored or revered role in their tribe. Did I miss something? <laughs> I just said a lot of words. <laughs> no, I thought that was like super comprehensive. I've seen like kind of a little bit more rarely maybe, but like a also for a gender, if folks want to stay, um, maybe not necessarily like identify as transgender, but a gender. So not identifying with um, gender identity. Um, yeah. Other than that. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I know um, when I started working with HIV and AIDS way back in the 90s, um, a also stood for ally and that we are advocates as well. So I know long time ago, that was also a, an A that was added at the very end as somebody who would advocate and be an ally for this community. So thank you both. That it's, a, it's a lot to learn and it's a lot to understand. So I appreciate us taking time to make sure everyone is on the same page as we as we move forward. So kind of our first little bit tough question for you, um, and AM, I'll let you start off with it. What are the most pressing health concerns among the LGBTQIA plus populations in the Midwest? The big one is access um, that I've like, I guess, encountered through um, my work and have read about uh, in like rural areas. Uh, and it's like, it's like the, the sm small amount of providers that are sort of trained to provide the care are scarce. And so people are traveling quite a distance. Um, I know like to the clinics that, you know, at the University of Iowa, it's like one hour or more people are traveling for care. Um, and so that's a big problem because there's a lot going on, I guess, behind the scenes of that, of not even, you know, being at the clinic before that there is trying to schedule a transportation, maybe if you don't have a car and scheduling your work, um, work day around, you know, taking time off, um, to be able to go to the clinic, um, to attend appointments. Um, so healthcare access is a huge issue and uh, the consequences of that are, you know, the health consequences are less frequent, you know, preventative screenings, um, since, you know, you're not, um, maybe you're not like, um, keeping the same, you know, you're supposed to be seen every year, every couple years for something and you can't be, um, I think, um, 
there's like the healthcare discrimination that this community has faced, like leads to um, conversations that are not being had, um, for example, about, um, you know, sexual health. Um, and so that's a problem. Um, and that can lead to, you know, issues um, like health consequences. Um, those are the two that I, um, and I've, I've also read that um, rural um, LGBTQ folks are less likely to have health insurance um, and coverage. Um, so those are the issues that come to mind for me. Maxwell, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I think AM hit the nail on the head. I think that um, access is one of the things that I see most often um, in my work in clinics and in my work um, working with trans and non-binary individuals. I've seen people have to drive, you know, three, sometimes even four, you know, depending on what part of the state you're in, it's, it's so wild how far people have to drive. And, uh, you know, just like they said, um, you know, that's a half day off of work, that's time off of school, that might be a hotel room, gas, like all these different things. Um, I think the other thing is um, that we are, um, you know, we are seeing that LGBTQ folks are less likely to access things like um, uh, consistent and recurring like uh, screenings for things like cancer, as was already mentioned. And I think a, a part of that is, of course, access. And a part of that is also um, intentionality in, in the way that folks um, approach uh, talking to LGBTQ people about that. So we've actually worked with some incredible folks at the Iowa Department of Public Health, uh, especially in like the Care for Yourself program that are really trying to do the hard work to make sure that trans and non-binary people are included in breast, chest, and cervical cancer screenings, for example. Um, and additionally, I think that there are a lot of providers that really want to provide this kind of care, but don't know how to, and don't also know how to connect with the um, folks that need that care as well. So again, all these different kind of components of access. Um, and then of course, the other thing that I think about are the barriers as it relates to, you know, being discriminated against in these healthcare systems. Um, you know, this is a nationwide statistic, but we've seen 41% of rural LGBTQ folks have been turned away from hospitals. Um, so that's for basic healthcare needs. And so that's something we have to pay attention to as well, in addition to medicalized racism, medicalized ableism, medicalized fat phobia, which also all intersect with LGBTQ identities as well. So I think if we're going to see LGBTQ people as whole people, we want to make sure that we're also paying attention to disparities as it relates to their other identities and recognize that that's an intersectional kind of approach we have to take. Great, thank you. I'm going to throw this question in there as well. So do you find that a lot of the LGBTQA population not being able to find um, a primary care provider? Because that's what insurance companies want, right? That, that your point of care, your primary care provider. And are they, are they struggling being able to even find that kind of access? Because you, um, even if you have insurance, you can't necessarily go to a specialty clinic or additional clinics if you don't get the referral from your primary care provider. So what kind of barrier do you see with that when it comes to that kind of health care or additional health care, I should say? Am you want to kick that one off? So I I think like for from my work and the work I did, like the primary care providers were, um, you know, very uh, like specifically I worked with like gender affirming healthcare um, primary care providers. Um, I think the kind of like 
communication and conversation that happens, the rapport that's built is different. Um, and that's what's, it's like a, and we'll talk about this kind of later too, but like suspending assumptions about relationships um, and being open about like different ways of being. Um, and when that rapport doesn't happen, um, that that's kind of what like makes people kind of struggle okay. to find someone, uh, a primary care provider. Absolutely. Yeah. One, one thing I think of it in terms of like root issues too, is that so many, we've already talked about this a little bit, right. But so many LGBTQ people don't have insurance um, and don't have stable housing, don't have stable access to food, don't have stable um, uh, supports that they need. So we're finding that not only are folks not getting like routine checkups, um, they're, they're not thinking about what's going to happen um, with like a breast or chest cancer screening. They're worried about like where their income is coming from for the next week. And so I think um, when we pay attention to, you know, how people are connecting with a primary care provider, I think the lack of um, health insurance is a big piece of that. And then the lack of like the the basic needs being met um, is also a big piece of, you know, why folks are just like, you know, maybe in, in a lot of the situations where I will chat with clients, um, they're only seeing a primary care provider so they can actually access like gender affirming care um, because that is what's pulling them to that place um, and not like the ongoing um, preventative care that we want to be seeing. Um, because again, it's just a matter of what do you have the time capacity and income for. Um, so that's something I think about a lot as well. But, you know, we see throughout the state of Iowa that many many primary care providers uh, don't know how to work with LGBTQ individuals. Now, there are many, uh, too many to shout out that are amazing and, and want to do that, that hard work, but a lot don't have the education and support needed to, pro to provide care to LGBTQ individuals. And so what we see is harmful um, healthcare experiences. Um, from the National Center for Transgender Equality, we've seen 33% of trans and non-binary people have had one or more negative experiences with a healthcare provider in the last year alone alone, it bumps up to over 60% for within someone's lifetime. So it's very likely that somebody has had a negative experience with a healthcare provider. And that's also why they're not getting a primary care provider, because they've had these negative healthcare experiences and don't want to go back. So we see the, the barriers just in terms of like basic income, basic needs being met, but also these harmful experiences with providers keeping folks away. So with that, what can be done to reduce the stigma in healthcare settings and make this population feel more welcome in accessing healthcare services? So um, I was thinking about this one this morning, but like kind of curating the space, um, curating like in the actual hospital environment, um, like making, if you have like brochures or things like that, really representing different kinds of people in those brochures, um, having inclusive like intake forms that include, you know, gender um, options beyond, you know, male and female, those kinds of things like show, right, that you're thinking about that you're, you know, you're committed to like, um, you know, working through these issues. Um, and uh, there was one more thing that I wanted to mention too. Uh, gender neutral restrooms, you know, in the space is a big one. Um, and, oh, and resource lists. That's the one that I want to talk about. 
wherever you're located. I know there are folks that are, you know, outside of Iowa too. If you can collect like lists of mental health services, um, other services in the local area and have those brochures like readily available in the office um, or in your healthcare environment, that's super helpful as well. I love all of those. I think those are really important kind of components. And I also think that, you know, appropriate training, not only for providers and um, nurses, uh, people who will be working with clients and patients in, in that kind of way, but also one thing we recommend is training and extra information for administration, right? So like if a person walks in, no matter if the provider knows their correct name and pronouns, if that front desk person who's very important, the receptionist, um, that uh, administrative assistant, if they don't know the basics of using someone's correct name and pronouns, that's going to keep that person away. I mean, I know people that have gone in to see the doctor, it's taken them a lot of effort just to get there because they're so nervous. And then the second they get dead named, they're like, okay, I'm out of here. Right. Uh, And they don't go back. So making sure that everyone from the phlebotomist to the provider knows how to uh, provide care as well. But one of the things that I think of that's a less nuts and bolts, but uh, it is to slow down. Um, I think that uh, the thing that a lot of providers come across is having to go pretty quickly throughout um, sessions. And with that comes, you know, almost the need to know exactly how to treat someone and exactly how the, the session's going to go. And so, um, you know, by slow down, I mean, ask good questions about the way that somebody wants you to refer to their body parts, explain what you're going to do thoroughly so that person can ask questions, make sure that you are checking in and doing um, thorough and thoughtful reproductive health care screenings, which ask about um, the body parts used during sex, not the gender of the partners, Um, all these different little things that can come together, um, along with um, paying attention to your own biases around uh, gender identity and sexual orientation and not assuming the gender identity or sexual orientation of anyone that comes into your doors and being consistent in asking everyone you see about their pronouns, everyone you see about their gender identity, things like that. So I really try to recommend to providers to slow down a little bit. And if you're not sure of the answer, if you're not sure how to give that client or patient the best care, just bring them in on that process and ask them, hey, you know, I want to provide you this care. I want to refer to you respectfully. How do I do that? Help me in that process Um, and connect with them as a human in that way. Thank you. I want to share uh, a comment that was made. I will add that it is harmful for clinics to post rainbow flags and provide inclusive brochures if staff do not actually understand or embrace the inclusion. And seeing some head nods, it yes, it's not easy if not everyone's on the same page or understands what their what services and that. So being able to provide additional training and services um, for staff before you take that leap, I think that's. As you said, Maxwell, that can be detrimental if, if you don't slow down and be able to address the proper manner. Okay. Um, as a non-binary provider, this is so important not to assume um, the dead name that clients or the providers. So great comment. Thank you. Um, next question. So what programs, policies, or interventions have you seen implemented that have worked to create a more welcoming environment for the LGBTQ? IA plus populations. 
one thing that I've personally seen that has like changed over time. Um, and I, like I saw it get implemented are like SOGI. Um, so like sexual orientation, gender identity collection fields in medical records, um, that integration into like the healthcare bureaucracy itself, um, is super helpful. Um, I know like the UIHC, you know, we have that capability to capture like this level of detail. And then you can also see it, like how it changes over time. It's been very helpful. Um, and also there's like a patient facing portal, right. That you can enter that detail in. And then it shows up on the front of your medical record. So people like whichever providers are accessing it can see identities there. Yeah. I, um, not to be a huge dork, but I have um, gone to UIHC um, for medical care before for gender affirming care and had that experience with that. And it was so cool to, you know, be in a space like that where I knew that my provider would get the correct kind of uh, communication about who I was and how to treat me. So I can <laughs> speak from personal experience um, uh, about that system. And we see that all, you know, um, in the Epic system with Unity Point, uh, Planned Parenthood, um, all of these different and um, healthcare providers are recognizing the ways that that can be really meaningful and impactful. Um, the thing that comes up for me with this is um, include LGBTQ people in the work that you're doing. Um, I have seen the most positive impact happening when state departments, hospital systems, uh, whoever it is, brings LGBT, like actual LGBTQ people into the fold and asks them um, and bringing in folks in, with expertise in that area. So it has been an incredible privilege to get to work with places like LGBTQ clinics, the Iowa Department of Public Health, um, to be able to develop um, more comprehensive healthcare materials and outreach um, because they actually have LGBTQ people on the team and really paying attention to who's at the table when those decisions are being made. I can lose track of the amount of people that have, you know, come and, and done that and, and seen really positive outcomes. And that's how we kind of change the narrative around LGBTQ health and wellness is um, trying to create more equitable systems that actually include and involve LGBTQ people, not just um, what cis and straight people think LGBTQ people want. Um, that's something that always pops up for me too. Wonderful. So we have a question in the question and answer. So a lot of Lynn County's forms have the option to include a salutation, Mr., Ms., et cetera. Are there any non-binary salutations that we should include or update on our forms? Or are there any salutations that they should get rid of entirely? Who wants to kick that one off? Um, I guess I can go. A non-binary option I've seen is um, capital M, little x, um, pronounced mix. Um, so that is one kind of salutation that I've seen. Um, I think, you know, if, if you need to keep them, keep them. But if not, I mean, that that's okay as well. Uh, so I guess that's my answer to that one. <laughs> yeah, fully agree. Mix is great to, to have. But again, you know, how are you going to collect all that information for all people. Um, if you can, then you can, but you can always just remove it and most people don't notice. Um, so it takes one less thing off of your plate to be thinking about um, and that way you're just using their first and last name. Wonderful. Well, and thank you for the question um, and appreciate your guys's input. 
What would you change about these programs, policies, or interventions to improve the LGBTQIA plus health? So what we kind of just discussed, what changes would you recommend, if any? Yeah, so I guess two things about like the healthcare bureaucracy. One is, and I think we talked about this a little bit earlier maybe, but like having an organ inventory. Um, so that is like more, um, what do we need to know like from you know the body standpoint, like in terms of health um and then the organ inventory also because you know people go through life and um you're having surgeries um you're removing organs etc and so you know after some time for a lot of people like sex assigned at birth does not mean you know you make assumptions there's assumptions attached to that phrase sex assigned at birth of like what organs are there etc and so having that more nuance um in that area would be great um and then uh regarding like systems like Epic that are great right now, um, you can take that further with um, adding, you know, pronouns um, to that as well. All good answers. I, I was just pondering because I didn't want to <laughs> repeat anything that I had said. No, I'm, like, <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm just chatty. So I, I could easily do that again. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, one of the things that I see that we focus on a lot at One Iowa is um, paying attention to what's happening with upper administration in your healthcare setting. I have so often seen some providers, um, some nurse practitioners that are really excited, that really want to give the right care, and they are not, you know, backed up by the right people that can actually create systems change. Um, and so that's where we see, you know, um, providers feeling overwhelmed, they feel already like they're they're going to fail um, because they don't have that backup from upper administrators, HR, people like that. Because ultimately, the folks that need that training, the folks that need to be uh, dedicated to this work need to come from all parts of the hospital system and the healthcare system, not just the provider, although that's a really, really key person, right? Um, so one thing that we really pay attention to is how do we create system change within these larger uh, healthcare settings um, so that uh, not only do front desk staff and providers know how to care for somebody, um, but the folks that work with them uh, to manage insurance know how to work with them um, and upper administrators are really paying attention to and are incentivized to make those changes as well, because often you need buy-in from those folks to change things in um, like Epic, for example, uh, to involve tech in that, things like that. So that's one thing that I think is a really big piece that I often don't think about, but we're trying to kind of flip the script on. Wonderful. Thank you. So what roles can health departments play in ensuring that the LGBTQIA plus identifying individuals are able to access the resources that they need and feel comfortable doing so? Um, okay. So a couple of different things that come to mind is first, health departments just do anything for LGBTQ people, <laughs> um, which is not to um, say that there's not a lot of things happening, but so often I'll work with organizations that are like, this is our first time ever considering working with LGBTQ people. So that's the place to start. Any amount of thoughtfulness in that area is going to be really important. But beyond that, I would say um, do LGBTQ specific um, 
care work, um, do LGBTQ specific campaigns. Um, there's, uh, you know, again, I, I can speak to so much of the amazing work that like the Care for Yourself program in the state of Iowa does around breast, chest, and cervical cancers. Um, they do LGBTQ specific posts. They talk about LGBTQ specific statistics. Um, and pay attention to those intersections, right? Uh, how are we seeing uh, public health be impacted not only by homophobia and transphobia, but also by racism, et cetera, et cetera. So um, my recommendation would be to start the process, even if it feels overwhelming, um, connect with um, people and resources that you have. That can be me and AM, but it could also be other folks that do work within your communities because they're going to know even better. Um, and uh, ch change your language and start doing targeted um, campaigns and outreach for LGBTQ individuals. Um, so yeah, that's what comes to mind for me. Awesome. Yeah, in addition to that, part of that was like feeling comfortable doing so, having something readily accessible. Um, I know at UI we've got, and I'm going to drop it in the chat, we have like a page uh, dedicated to resources um, for uh, trans um, communities, um, their allies at Iowa. And, you know, as part of this page, there's a map of like campus, non-gender specific or gender neutral bathrooms are included on that map. Um, and so there's a ton of resources available there. Um, so maybe having like some way uh, to have, you know, an easily accessible page, like on your public health site or um, your local web page uh, is helpful. Wonderful. So we talked about what role can they play, um, and you, I think you both kind of touched on this, but just to make sure we provide any additional, you know, support to local public health that may be on today, are there specific steps that you would encourage them to do, especially, I think, Maxwell, you touched on the fact that, you know, just starting the conversation is the first step, right? Wanting to be actively involved in being a part of the openness of making your clinic feeling safe and welcoming. But what do those steps look like? What might that be um, for local public health agencies that need to feel empowered to make that first step, even if they're not maybe the administrator or the um, higher ups that need to have that buy-in? What can an individual do to start the process to be more welcoming? I guess I should clarify that to be a more welcoming clinic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a few first steps can happen. Um, first, look at your local community and see if there's any LGBTQ groups there. It's gonna be really helpful to be connected with the folks that are doing that good work in your community first. Um, if there aren't any folks or if you um, have connected with them and it need additional support, hit us up at One Iowa. So often I'll get emails from like that one person that's like, I want to do better. How can I? And that like has a huge ripple effect within their organization. So I, I would love to hear from you. <laughs> Please reach out. Um, and One Iowa does a lot of that training, that support for organizations that want to be more inclusive um, and thoughtful in working with LGBTQ community. We can share best practices, things like that. Um, and then I would also connect with other people in other communities that have done the work you're trying to do. So um, uh, UIowa is a really, really good example. Uh, UIHC, um, Unity Point, um, Broadlands, all these different organizations. And, and those are just to name a few, right? I recently worked with Blackhawk Public Health and they are doing really cool things within their organization to try to change things. There are small community health centers that are doing incredible work. So I'm um, trying to connect with others because sometimes 
it, it can be nice to say, okay, well, Max from one Iowa thinks we should do this, but it's even more powerful to say, okay, this provider in this other community has done this. How can we look at that as well? So sometimes you can get some more um, sway if you uh, show an example of another organization similar to yours that is doing the work as well. Wonderful. Am, do you have anything to add to that? Um, that was a very comprehensive. Um, I don't know. I, I'm thinking a lot about, I guess, and in, in kind of what I'm doing, like one of the things I, I really want to help change the script on um, is uh, how to kind of move research forward in this area too, intentionally in the way that Max um, mentioned earlier of like having it be like a, a community engagement process and making sure that it's actually like a, um, you know, that the people that the research is supposed to impact is like, you know, it's actually responsive and not um, like you were saying earlier, um, what, you know, researchers think that communities want. Um, so anything in that area that can, that can push that forward, um, I think is really important too. And, and that for me, I think looks like, first of all, like transparency about what you're, what you're, what you're doing in your research um, and how it will impact the community. Um, so those are things that I'm thinking about. Great, thank you. Are there any common misconceptions about members of the LGBTQIA population among public health or health professionals, educators or advocates that should be corrected? one thing that I like to ground and center in is that, you know, we've talked a lot about disparities today. And of course that's, you know, the focus of what we're doing, but the one thing that I think is a misconception is that, um, you know, there are disparities in pretty much every area of health for LGBTQ people, but we are deeply resilient patients and clients, right? Um, we have community um, and family systems that exist outside of what you might normally see. Um, we have chosen family and chosen communities. Um, and I believe that there's a lot of LGBTQ joy that comes to the table as well. And a really profound sense of self-advocacy because in order to come out even to yourself, you have to want to advocate for yourself. You have to care about who you are um, in some way, shape or form. And so I think that um, one thing that is not often thought about um, uh, or is a misunderstanding is that like LGBTQ people aren't interested in having better health outcomes or don't care, um, but really it's those um, barriers that we see so often because there is such a high level of resiliency and self-advocacy that comes with being LGBTQ. And you will find that LGBTQ um, patients and clients are very driven to care for themselves and self-actualize as well. So that's something I see a lot in my doula work as well is this um, really beautiful part of LGBTQ healthcare that is like getting to work with LGBTQ people because we are awesome. <laughs> so uh, that's something that comes up. Wonderful. Yes, I echo that 100%. And um, also, I want to add like that even before like people are coming to the clinic, there's a lot of community like knowledge um, about what people are experiencing. Um, and so people are coming with that uh, to their appointments. They're not, you know, necessarily learning from their providers. Um, people are learning from each other and their own um, experiences, uh, healthcare experiences. Um, and then someone wrote in the chat uh, that asexual sexual health is one thing and a hundred percent like that has been 
just, I mean, I think there's still framings that it's, um, like you were saying, Cameron, like that it needs fixing, that there's something wrong um, when it's like, a, you know, it's a, just a variation of, um, you know, natural like uh, diversity. And so it's a really important point um, as well. What you just said made me think of this as well. I think the the there's a rich history in LGBTQ relationships with healthcare and mental health care providers in pathologizing being LGBTQ, right? As a thing that's wrong with us that we need to fix. Um, and of course, that uh, that applies to um, asexual folks, as is mentioned in the chat. But uh, you know being trans isn't something that you fix through gender affirming care, um, right? Uh, that's that's not the, the goal. So I think sometimes providers view it as like, okay, something's wrong with you and we have to fix it. Um, whereas we wanna see being LGBTQ as like a beautiful gift and a part of a, a larger person, right? Um, a person um, that has a lot of different um, components and experiences as well. Wonderful, thank you. Maxwell AM, you have this platform and this opportunity to share your expertise. What else haven't we touched on that you would want to make sure that they're leaving with? What would be some of the key messages that you want to make sure they're walking away with? Well, I want to really bring home that um, you being on this webinar, you making the little changes that you're making in whatever component of the system that you're part of, um, those things really matter. Um, and they are sometimes life-saving, right? Um, whenever I'm part of a panel like this, um, or whenever I get to talk to providers, administrators, um, researchers about these issues, I just want to instill this, this sense of gratitude that I have, um, because I've seen in my own life, in the life of my clients and in the life of my loved ones, my friends, my partners, um, that this work is really, really important. And it doesn't just happen in a vacuum, right? Uh, you are impacting folks's, um, health and well-being in ways that you might not even realize by trying to move forward and make some of these changes. Um, so I would remind that. Um, and then I would also say, like, in this work, be sure to stay human um, and connect with what makes you <laughs> uh, what makes you human, what calls you to this work um, and ground in that. Um, I find, like I said before, so often with providers, they feel like they need to know all the answers. They need to they feel like they have to be perfect when really what we want to be is human um, and and bring uh, our patients and clients in on um, the, the process of getting care. Um, and and slow down and ground in that first. Um, so I, to, to summarize, I would say you're doing amazing things no matter what those things are. You are pushing the needle forward um, and you should, um, you know, remember that that is going to really change some folks' life. Um, and also um, that um, being human and showing up as yourself with your lived experiences is also valuable to this work as well. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, and then I guess like for the final point, like from my end is really what we've been talking about a couple of times is making sure that the people who are, I guess, impacted by the change are present um, in these discussions too. So like, um, yeah, so I mean, the communities that are affected by these changes are part of, part of the changes and their voices are being heard. Just overall, I think that's really important. And that's how we can kind of shift you know, historically, what we've already talked about the pathologization historically of um, 
um, these communities is is really, you know, creating that kind of communication between um, healthcare systems um, and um, communities. I think in my past, when I've worked at the local public health um, level and being a part of trying to make change and making us a more welcoming um, community, um, I've been at local public health agencies for the last pretty much 20 years of my life. And I think one of the things that I've always told my team when I've worked with them is that, you know, we're back so to go back to your point we're human um so i think it's okay if you make a mistake it's just acknowledging that and being able to move forward and make sure you're sensitive and being able to apologize that there are um things that happen as we learn and grow but um also knowing that um i think it's better to i'd rather make a mistake than not to make anything at all and not make any effort to work with the lgbtqa community i'd rather fumble um I don't mean to, but also to be able to say, hey, I'm human, I'm learning this, but I want to be open, I want to help you, I want to be there, I want to be supportive. And I think that that's a key piece is I think a lot of times, a lot of um, local public health agencies, team members, they, they're intimidated, you know, it's, it's scary when you're learning something for the first time. And also knowing that sometimes you get that one chance as a provider, you get that one opportunity. And if someone doesn't feel comfortable, it can be very scary, worrying that you may impact something in a negative way. But I think as long as you're, you can walk in with an open, honest conversation, I think that's one of the things that we've always kind of worked on when I've been working with my teams on, on those issues. I did want to shout out, I got like a private message question. So I'm just going to share that really briefly. So the person says, I'm curious to hear about your experience working as a doula and the maternal health sector that can be more inclusive of non-cisgender individuals accessing that kind of care. Would I be able to share more? Yes. So um, it's called maternal health, right? Um, uh, that in and of itself is pretty gendered. Um, uh, and it's really important that there's um, a lot there's a lot of different things that we can talk about when it comes to being more inclusive of folks that give birth, um, birthing individuals of all different genders um, from small changes like changing your language to parental health, um, birthing people, et cetera, et cetera, nursing rooms instead of mother's rooms. There's also all little different things that you can do. Um, but I also think that if you are a provider that provides um, like prenatal care, for example, um, and if you've never worked with a trans or non-binary birthing person before. There are a lot of different resources for you to, to take care of that person and provide care for that person alongside the, you know, healthcare best, best practices that we see anyway. Um, but I would say that um, those systems are really not safe for trans and non-binary individuals. Um, it's really scary to give birth as a trans or non-binary individual. Um, and um, so we want to be paying attention to that, especially when we also pay attention to the ways that, uh, for example, like black parental health is um, an issue that we're facing in the state of Iowa. Um, and we're one of the worst states in the, in the nation for uh, black parental health, right? So um, how do we um, pay attention to those things as well, those intersections? Um, but I, I have so many thoughts and best practices in this area. So if you're ever interested in learning more, I'd be happy to connect um, as well in that area too. But um, there's so many interesting ways that you can uh, provide support to trans and non-binary birthing folks um, that you might not otherwise think about. Great, thank you. 
Um, I just want to share another comment that was put in the Q&A just so our, our audience um, sees it or hears it as well. Um, yes, straight cis people are so toxic. Also, doctors assuming that because someone has a partner of a certain gender that they don't have or haven't had partners of other genders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just wanted to share that comment that it can be frustrating. And that's one of those things to never make assumptions, right? It's a great point. I'm really, really glad um, that that person brought that up, um, which is why I just like believe in the power of a really good reproductive healthcare screening, like not only talking about like the genders of partners that are involved, but also the body parts used during sex. So we're not like not assuming like, oh, I have a girlfriend. And that means that that person has a cervix and a vulva and all these different things. Right. Because we know that that's not the case for people of all genders. Right. Um, So really kind of deconstructing some of those notions around what a sexual health screening can look like and um, being more thorough in sexual health histories too, um, and not being afraid to use like the word vulva and cervix and um, anus and uh, like penis and things like that, like being really specific and, you know, providing care by really becoming an expert on the person sitting right in front of you can be really helpful. But again, I think the number one thing that I say in trainings is just like stopping making assumptions. Don't make assumptions about people's sexual orientation or gender identity based on how they look, talk or act, and don't make assumptions about somebody's um, sexual health history based on any of those things either. So, uh, always be fact-finding, always be learning more, and don't ever make any assumptions. That's great advice. A small point, I guess, like going along with that is just like a note that some people use like different terms for um, their body parts and to just be aware of that as well. Um, If you're, you know, a provider uh, here today, you know, um, and you work with, um, right, these communities, just just know that like some people are using um, uh, different terms too. Absolutely. Maxwell, and thank you for your expertise. It's been a pleasure uh, moderating this today. I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your enthusiasm and just your your expertise. It's been a pleasure um, you sharing everything with us today. I encourage our participants to to subscribe to our Building Health Equity um, email list. Um, You can find that on our website. Um, The next webinars, they are always the second Wednesday of each month. Our next one will be discussing disability, justice, and health equity. Again, thank you everyone for your time today. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Maxwell AM, you guys rock. You're awesome. So thank you for spending the afternoon with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Trisha Kitzman, Cynthia Maharani, Natalie Peters, Melissa Richland, and the speakers who have shared their expertise with us. Theme music for the Building Health Equity podcast series was composed and produced by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for the Building Health Equity initiative is provided by the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation link and transcript. For additional resources and information, or to view the video webinar recordings, please be sure to visit www.buildinghealthequity.com.